Hello, you made it to the weekend. Welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. We're going to dive into this past week's episode with Kim from the Frugal Engineers. That episode, if it was titled The Rescue Ladder Out of Poverty, I think was one that needs to be heard by the universe. So I hope, first of all, that if you haven't yet listened to episode 158, you will start there. That episode will make your life better. And it's something that even if you don't necessarily need it at your stage of life, I guarantee you that you know someone that does and you should share it with them. So really excited to dive into this and to help me with this. I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I am doing quite well. And yeah, I cannot wait to talk about this episode with Kim. But first, I wanted to compliment you on a new recipe that you've introduced and shown me. And now it's, uh, I think this is in our top 50 list. So tell we the world about it. We cracked the Barrett top 50. Yeah. That's amazing. We might not even be number 40, 49. We might've cracked the top 30, I think. Yeah. It's that good, right? It is, it is delicious. So I was given a recipe a while back for a vegetarian enchilada. So this is a meatless dish. It does have cheese because come on, it's cheese. But it is amazing. So it's a sweet potato enchilada. And I think it was actually initially shared with us by Allison Goddard, who we interviewed uh, way back, I believe, episode 83. I'm sticking with it. We'll come back and find, double check. Jonathan, it was 86. Hey, yeah. good. All right, so 83 was Cody, which was an amazing episode as well. You should definitely check that one out. Uh, but yes, episode 86, Allison shared this with us. And it has become a staple in our family. And you, we had you over for dinner the other night, and I could tell you were impressed. Yes, I had seconds and thirds. And it was, yeah, it was fabulous. So, and so I guess that is originally a vegan recipe, but you added in some cheese. Is that the... I think it was marketed as a vegetarian recipe, although I would not be surprised. I think so. I think she gave us the recipe, which inspired us. We made it one time, but then I lost the recipe. And so I went to search on the, let me Google that for you internet. I found an alternative that had cheese on it and that was delicious. So do you have a sense of what this costs basically per person per meal or what it costs to make the entirety of it? This is well less than $2 per person per meal. Yeah. Yeah. I I haven't done the price per serving on this, but based on the cost of the average ingredients, which are far and few in between, far less than 10, and it's mostly just a few spices. Yeah. You're going to crush that $2 per person. And and, and to say, we let's talk about that for a second, right? Because $2 per person per meal is at first glance, maybe a seemingly arbitrary number to throw up there, but it's acted as an anchor point for you and your family. And it has saved you hundreds of dollars a month, thousands of dollars a year, which when aggregated together and then compounded over the last decade has been a massive force multiplier for you and your family reaching financial independence in your early thirties. Yeah. This has been one of the biggest force multipliers without question, probably along, along with our car and our housing situation. I mean, this is right up there with any of them. Actually, it's interesting because we we talk about this mythical top 50 list. Laura and I have been trying to curate our, as we call them, A-plus recipes. Basically, whenever Laura tries something new, we both give it like an honest assessment. 
as silly as this sounds, it's usually a B, B plus, A minus, or if it gets into that A or A plus range, then we're talking this might be something to keep around. And Laura, a couple years ago, said she would mock up these recipes actually for our Choose a Vi community. It was a little slow going at the beginning, but she's actually bombed through a bunch of them. And now, Jonathan, we have 27 of these recipes on the Choose a Vi vault. You can access them through chooseavi.com slash vault. And yeah, there are 27. Laura has a PDF. She has her little annotations on there of anything that she may have changed. And she also puts a price breakdown for basically the ingredients that we purchase. Now, obviously, if you live in a dramatically high, higher cost of living area like Hawaii or some such, it's going to be a little different. But I think all of these 27 recipes are basically plus or minus a couple of dimes outside of $2. Some of them range down from $1.50 up to maybe $2.50 per person per meal. But it's really the spirit, as you were saying before, it's the spirit and it's the anchor point of that $2 per person per meal. It doesn't mean we're absurd people and we throw it out if it's $2.05 per person per meal. It's just that anchor point. And honestly, if Laura made just these 27 recipes in a calendar year, right, a couple times, I would have a very, very successful eating career for, for dinner that year. So yeah, I mean, check it out. Chooseabout.com slash vault. And it's very important to note for our audience that these recipes were not picked based on whether or not they would hit $2 per person per meal. Like, oh, we could, you know, rather it's what tastes amazing. And then if on top of that, it happens to match that price point, that's the construct, right? This has never been about deprivation. It should not be about deprivation. It's the fact that you can do so much more for so much less. And you're probably taking that fact for granted, apply a little bit of intention to your grocery budget. And if we're going to take some time to apply some attention to our grocery budget, we should probably apply a similar level of intention to all of our life, other aspects of our life. And I think with this episode with Kim, we're actually seeing what that looks like. And even when, in her case, she truly was a trailblazer, right? Like there was no one in her social circle. There was no one in her family that could point her towards this. But what she said instead is, I realized that I don't need to always learn from my own mistakes. I can actually learn and see what other people have done and then use that experience to avoid it. Yeah, and the quote she had there was, quote, I can borrow somebody else's experience and learn from it. And she was talking in that particular case about, about her sisters and her family and, frankly, people just in her local area there in Myrtle Beach. She said, structurally, you weren't expected to graduate from high school. And I heard that, Jonathan, and it kind of blew me away then that there are places still in this country, places we've heard of, right, Myrtle Beach, that you're not structurally expected to graduate from high school. She said this STEM boarding school that she went to was, quote, my rescue ladder out of the cycle of poverty. I mean, have you heard of a more stark and stunning example of the power of education? Mm, it was crystal clear. And to your point, and actually to slow down on that, like you think of, I mean, we, we live on the East Coast. Myrtle Beach is a wonderful place that you can go with your family and you can have a great time and they have fantastic golf, something that you have never taken <laughs> advantage of. <Never. laughs> but to think about, okay, actually living in one of these tourist towns, what does it mean to hear her say, as someone who lived there, the structural, the way her high school was structured was a funnel. You had this huge elementary school, you had this, you know, middle-sized middle school. And by high school, the classes got smaller and smaller. By the senior year, they were in basically storage containers. 
and the ex, ex, not the expectation, but the reality was most people didn't graduate and get that high school diploma. The attrition rate is is insane. And clearly, and we've seen this actually in a couple other places, if that's the case, the rescue ladder out of that, to your point, was education. And I think it's something that we take for granted or we we marginalize to some degrees the value of education because if you have all the information, you can make other choices. But in one of the in the situation that she's describing, the information is not there, right? The opportunities do not appear to be there. And if you're just doing what everyone around you is doing and everyone around you is making the same mistakes, it ends in a bad place. It ends up with you falling down and having to pick yourself up over and over again in this cycle that gets perpetuated onto the next generation. For her, breaking out of that was college, but it was also demoralizing, as she said, to be able to have this opportunity, but because they didn't have $800, she wasn't able to take advantage of these various opportunities. And so for her, this STEM school opportunity, which we can talk about just a little bit more, was life-changing. Yeah, and it was especially interesting that her mother was the one who encouraged her to apply for this. So she didn't even have any interest in applying necessarily, but her mom really made her do this. And she got a full ride, full tuition and room and board at this boarding school. That's the governor's school for math and science there in South Carolina. And again, she said this in and of itself got her on this path out of poverty. And it's amazing also to see how, how mentorship has really made such an impact in her life. Even when she's talking about literally sitting outside of a professor's office during office hours. Now, obviously this was during college, but it's the same concept. I mean, she was always looking for these ways to connect with people. She wasn't sitting there to do this in some spammy way, right? She was just there and she was trying to soak it in and create this relationship with this professor who wound up ultimately helping her down the road. And she couldn't have foreseen that. And I just find that really cool when you open yourself up to these experiences. She was also talking later in the episode about a conference that she went to and some happy hour where she met someone who ultimately helped her get her first job as a contractor. And it's just, it's these little experiences where, again, if you're open to serendipity, you just don't know where life is going to take you. But my advice, and I can give you this advice from a place of a deeply, deeply personal place where I was someone who wasn't open to new experiences previously. I wasn't open to meeting new people. And for whatever reason, I had this, this story, this script that I ran in my own head that I'm introverted and I don't know, I'm not good in social situations. I, I don't know where it came from, but it was honestly there. And Jonathan, I don't, I don't have that script anymore. It's amazing the good that has come to my life, both professionally, but really more, more so personally, just by being open to these experiences, by meeting new people, it has really honestly transformed my life in a dramatic way. There's actually a fair amount in that statement that I want to unpack. And I want to kind of parse, I want to go back to really that role of the mentor and the mentorship and the mentee, right? I think that there's actually many people in our community that are on both sides of that equation. People that are actually look, they have had so much success in various aspects of their life and they're looking for a conduit to help effectively the next generation or this next class, this next group of people that are maybe several years behind. Mentorship, as opposed to accountability, they're slightly different. Mentorship, someone is a few years ahead of you, either on a career path, maybe just age, maybe life season of life, et cetera. But mentorship, typically someone is a few steps ahead of you, and they're looking back to say, 
Here's what I think your next step should be. Here's the introductions that I think you need. Here's the information that I think you need. Here's the conversations that you need to have. And they're doing it from a place of giving back usually. And I think there's a real skill set there to being a mentor. And so for our community, people that are looking to have that sort of impact, we can start to over the next year, look into how to become a great mentor. But then the other half of that is as a mentee, how do you go and find a mentor? How do you make that request? How does that even happen? I think she made this great point here. She was able to acquire mentors that were not her professors. You would think that your mentors are going to be the ones that teach you directly, right? If in the, in the situation of a college professor, she was able to actually acquire letters of references and effectively mentors from professors that had never had one-on-one interaction with her in a classroom. So if you think, oh, well, this person's out of reach or I couldn't because I don't have this job there or I don't have access here, they, I couldn't possibly get this type of mentor. It's probably a limiting belief if you understand how this process works. I think on our end, we'll try to do our best to really find out what that roadmap looks like. Cause I don't, it's kind of a new skill set that both of us are looking at and saying, wow, I see the power there based on what other people have accomplished with this. To compare and contrast this with accountability, where you have someone that is on roughly the same playing field as you. You know, they're very, they're on a similar trajectory. Maybe they have ideas, maybe they're taking action, but you're looking to pair up with each other to say, how much more powerful would it be if we could hold each other accountable to these stated goals? That's valuable as well. You can have both. And you could see that what was amazing, Kim was so next level. She was next level in her ability to tell her story, right? How did she get the scholarship? How did she get accepted to the governor's school? It was because she was able to tell a compelling story. And I wasn't really expecting her to be able to answer this question when we asked, like, why did you get accepted? Do you remember what you told them about? Why did they pick you instead of somebody else? And I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you remember what she attributed that success to? Okay, no, I'll I'll remind you because it stuck out with me. Journaling. What is the story you tell yourself about yourself? And, And Kim says, she said, I had been journaling for years writing down thoughts and ideas. And, and she didn't use these words, but to put them on to her situation, she understood the, the story she told herself about herself. I think so many people wonder, why would you start a blog if you're, you don't have a profit motive? Why would you start You know, why would you, why would you go through the process of writing a journal? There's so much power to understanding your story and iterating it to understand something that you can actually tell somebody in a short, maybe elevator pitch, 200 or 300 words in less than five minutes, where you are on this journey and at every aspect of your life. This matters when it comes to applying for colleges. It comes when it, ma- when it comes to applying for jobs, applying for scholarships, business ideas, everything comes down to, do you understand the story you tell yourself about yourself? Kim figured this out in high school. And I really want to bring this home here in that We've talked about blogging before, and I think I think many people hear that word and like, oh, I don't want to do a blog. But think about it. You don't necessarily have to do a blog. You could just journal. But there are a lot of benefits to starting a blog, and they don't have to be take over the world. They really don't. It, it, you could never make a dollar and still be happy that you made the decision to start a website for the reasons that I just mentioned with figuring out how to tell your story, but also building this talent stack. Having a website, I mean, talk about future-proofing your skills. If you have just some of the basics locked down, you start to build this talent stack. And we talk about this all the time. We even saw this in Kim's story, if you really want to stretch this out, how she was always looking to develop her skills and work at the highest level of productivity. And then at some point, she realized that she was so indispensable to her job that she really could just do this on her own. Like they were lucky to have her as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, and this is where the real hourly wage comes in right? She looked at this first job that she had and she figured out after everything, she was only making about $12 per hour in that real hourly wage. And she looked at 
Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin and really internalize those lessons that, all right, if I'm making only $12 an hour, then that $50 dinner out, I mean, that's four plus hours of my life that I'm giving up for that. I just think that is such a fascinating way to go through life is to realize that you are giving up life energy when you're purchasing things. Now, that doesn't mean don't purchase or deprive yourself. That is clearly not what we're saying. But it does reframe the conversation when you look at something and say, oh, wow, that's going to be $100. $100 doesn't sound like much. But if you're only making $12 an hour in the real hourly wage, then that's an entire workday. That's eight hours of your life that is gone to make that purchase. I think that is a really, really fascinating way to look at life. The real hourly wage was one of the most profound ideas that I read in the book, Your Money or Your Life. It's one that stayed with me for years and years. And I think for our audience, I don't have the book pulled up in front of me, but I was able to pull up a quick summary just to work through this exercise. I think it'd be valuable. What's your take-home pay per pay period, right? So I know some people get paid weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever that may look like. What's your pay period interval? So let's say you make $4,000 a month just for simplicity. Your number of work days per pay period, so you work 20 days a month, so you work five days a week, four weeks a month, something in that regards. How, and then work through what? how many hours do you work per day? Do you have any unpaid breaks that you take? How many minutes of commute do you have? Do you have a two-hour commute back and forth? How many minutes does it take to get ready? You see where this is going, right? Do you have to get ready for work? And then when you get home, do you have to decompress from work? Do you need to have a drink when you get home from work just to like take a little break and just come back down to steady state? How many miles do you drive on your car every day to work? Do you have to pay fares, fees, tolls to get to work? Do you have to cover daycare expenses while you're at work? Do you have dining out expenses to your point with your coworkers while you're at work? Do you have any sort of unreimbursed clothing? Maybe you work in a profession that has a specific dress code and you have clothing that you have purchased just for the sole purpose of being at work. You would never wear this outside of work. Why would you wear that? You have dues, maybe union dues that are associated with this. You have gifts that are due at the office for that Christmas party. Now, after you have what you brought in minus everything that went out, now calculate your take-home pay and divide that by the number of hours that you put in. Now you're getting a sense of your real hourly wage. And that is kind of depressing. It's, in fact, it's really depressing if, if you realize that all of everything that's left is just going to stuff. It's not going to buying your freedom, right? It's not going to working towards financial independence. You can then start making changes and you can, and it actually gives you tools to evaluate your current working environment. That is exactly what Kim did. Aside from the real hourly wage, Kim had another, what I thought was essential teaching here, basically on, on money. And it came down to consulting. When she was working for someone else, she looked at what she was being paid per hour. And she determined that if you work for somebody else, what they're really charging the client is at least three times of what they're paying you. So if, just for argument's sake, if you're getting $30 per hour for your job, in all likelihood, that firm is charging the client $90 per hour, which means very clearly that that client is willing to pay $90 per hour for your work, but you're only getting a third of that because of, think about all the other fees and overhead that your company has, right? I mean, the office, all the lights, all utilities, everything, not to mention, as she said, the salary of your boss and your boss's boss, right? Like these things go into it. So she looked at the problem a little bit differently, which I think is a hallmark 
of the Phi mindset. And she basically said, all right, if I can build up a side practice here, and she was working essentially two jobs at once while she was building this up, but she could have a very soft landing where she had a thriving consulting business. And what I thought was especially interesting about her consulting business and and her husband's is she said, quote, the more niche you can be, the easier it is to get your name out there. And she's saying they could have just been general engineers and not had any specific niche. And maybe in theory, that would have given them a wider array of options, but they would have been just two in a sea of engineers across this country. Whereas if you niche down, she was saying something to the effect of, if you're one of the 50 or 100 people in the entire country or in the entire world that can do something, well, then you have an option of making a name for yourself. And I just thought that was a really cool rethink. So while the entire pool of potential jobs might be dramatically reduced, the likelihood of you being able to stand out because of your skill and your ability raises dramatically because there might only be a couple of dozen people who have that skill set in the entire world. So I thought that was really, really cool. Totally agree. And the other aspect to the way they actually set it up, recognizing that margin is instead of, they are very productive people. They work very fast. They work hyper-efficiency. They don't go hang out and talk at the water cooler. And they recognize that. They realize they could be a win-win. They could charge the client for the task as opposed to by the hour. And then they could come in under the client, the client's expectations with that initial billing. But because of their insane levels of productivity, they could crush the task in a fraction of the time thereby going back to that real hourly wage, crushing, you know, their hourly wage and they can work from home. They were able to carve this out. This is the way that once you understand the problem, you can start making incremental improvements. These sorts of calculations may change the type of jobs that you take, the amount of commute that you build into your life. It's an amazing reframe on, are you making a living or are you making a dying? And, and that frame also coming from Vicki Robbins book, basically saying, if aliens were to see the, the earth, and see what we were doing and look at what you put your energy into. Are you actually building a life for yourself or are you barely getting by to, it looks like you're just making a dying. You need to understand this formula and really to, to really be able to understand the rules and really be able to carve out this life for yourself. The last piece that I want to talk about with regards to Kim is that Kim didn't start working on her own as a consultant. She worked for a business learning the skills. And we're actually talking next week with Jamie Masters. It's a phenomenal episode. You have to listen to it. It's talking about business building and business coaching. If you are an aspiring business owner or you want to start a business, this is one you need to hear. You also need to listen to the companion roundup because we're going to talk about some of these ideas further. The big thing here is you need to be able to gain the skills. So you will be working for an employer while you learn the skills, but that doesn't have to be the, the stopping point. Once you have the skills, these calculations really come into play and you're thinking like an entrepreneur. You may not be an entrepreneur on day one, but at some point you're going to go hang your own shingles. And that is a very powerful word of encouragement. And it doesn't just apply to engineers. As we'll talk about in next week's Friday Roundup, you can apply this to anything, whether it be a trade job, blue-collar job, white-collar job, whatever it is, you need to have the skills that's the underpinning of everything else that we're going to talk about. All right, well, let's go ahead and switch gears and bring MK into this conversation. Next, we actually had a question from Jen, who was asking about her savings rate. 
Yeah. And actually this came through on Facebook. It's a great question. And Jen says, I've recently come across a few posts that mention using the very simple method of calculating your years until retirement using your savings rate, but I'm still not clear on how to best calculate your savings rate. Now I should say, Brad, that we actually did a, a little bit of a deep dive into this a while back talking about all the different ways. So to her point, it sounds great, right? Income versus expenses. But the reality is, well, what constitutes your income and what constitutes your expenses? And man, that is a rabbit hole. And so um, we riffed off an article that Big Earn did talking about four different ways to calculate it. And we kind of extracted out from that. But I thought maybe today what we could do is kind of highlight, I think, what might be the most common sense way to calculate your savings rate. Cool. Yeah, I like that. And this is another one of the back to basics FI 101 concepts. So yeah, let's rock and roll. So I actually took some time, Brad, to put this together and kind of come up with how I would incorporate it. And we could talk about a few of the flaws with this, but I think for the vast majority of our audience, people that are starting out, this formula should be the most robust without getting too far into the weeds to make it virtually unusable. So if it comes down to your savings, divided by your total income, right? So your savings, right? Everything that you have coming in um, on the bottom and then how much of that you actually saved on the top. But savings can look like different things. So in my mind, what does that include? And feel free to add to this, but your employer match. We talked about earlier how you need, if you have a 3%, 4%, 5% match that your employer gives you for funding your 401k, you not only need to do that, but then that should be actually counting towards your savings rate. That's your income and you're saving it by making the choice to get that match. And then along with that, also you need to do your contribution to your 401k. And that could be a 401k. It could be a 457. Different people have different vehicles. If you're an entrepreneur, it could be a solo 401k, a SEP IRA, you know, whatever that is. Along with that, you might on the other end of that have like an individual, you, you have an IRA, uh, you have a Roth IRA, you might have an HSA. All of these are savings vehicles. And then once you get done with your retirement accounts, you might have taxable accounts, you might have savings accounts. And then Brad, this is a point you made in that episode. Also, some portion of what you pay towards your mortgage should also count towards your savings rate. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some point of contention with this, but I feel very strongly that the amount that you put towards principal should count as savings because I guess taken to its logical extreme, if you were paying extra on that mortgage and it was paying down your mortgage principal balance, like let's say you decided to send $1,000 extra that month to pay down mortgage principal, that to me is very obviously savings. Then in this case, I would take a step back and say, okay, my normal mortgage payment, some component of this is interest and taxes and insurance, et cetera. But some component is very clearly paying down the principal on that mortgage. So to me, that is savings, albeit forced savings, but savings nonetheless. So all of this goes to the top half of this equation. So savings rate, what you save divided by your total level of income, that that I think is a pretty well-rounded look at what would count as savings. The bottom half of the equation is what do we have coming in? So obviously it's everything that we just mentioned, right? That goes down to the bottom of this equation, but also it would be your payroll deductions for healthcare, your consumption, you know, which may look like your take-home pay. It's basically everything else that comes in at the bottom of your paycheck. So what I thought we could do, Brad, is I've actually reached out to the team ahead of time to see whether or not they could put together a savings rate calculator. Uh, that way, audience members, if they want, could actually go to the show notes for today's episode and actually do this calculation right along with us. 
It's actually funny. I was able to get confirmation that we could actually have this calculator live this week. And we, that is only possible because we've partnered with On Trajectory. They are an affiliate of ours. We featured Tyson in episode 149 of our podcast. And I kind of, we, I basically went to Tyson and said, Tyson, uh, we're going to hopefully in a perfect world, if we could have a savings rate calculator for this episode, I think it'd be really helpful for people in our audience. So this calculator, like real time here, Tyson did not have a bunch of notice to put this together. And he, in an unbelievable manner, was able to work with Ed and the team to get this thing set up. So uh, for audience members, you know, everything I just said just went right over your head, but you want to know what's my savings rate, you can go to the show notes for today's episode, choosefi.com slash 158R, choosefi.com slash 158R. The calculation that we're describing, uh, we have a calculator there. It's in beta right now, but it's there. You can actually run this calculation and find out what your savings rate actually is. Uh, again, huge thank you to the team for actually hustling to make this actually possible. And also, let me just say this. Um, we feature Tyson again. That was episode 149 of our podcast. Tyson has actually set up a free trial for anybody inside the FI community to use their retirement planning software. Uh, it is a paid service, but they're giving away a 14-day free trial, and you do not need to put in your credit card in order to do that free trial. It's it's com you know completely free. Just go to chooseavide.com slash OT. That's kind of a sidebar for today. We're talking about the savings rate calculator. If you want to calculate your savings rate, just go to the show notes for today's episode. So yeah, Brad, all that happened. Yeah. Let's just dive down and clarify on that bottom side of the equation, because I think this is something that's not entirely apparent to everyone and people consider different things. What I've heard in terms of savings rate is income after taxes. Is that what you're implying with the bottom part of the pay stub? Yeah. Income after taxes. So after taxes has been removed, but not before, because you could have payroll, like you could have deductions for various services that your company benefits that your company is offering you that I think that would count as income. So we're, we're after taxes. So after your FICA, your Medicare, your social security, your state tax, they, that's all gets taken away. But you are picking like your medical insurance, your health insurance, you know, your various, your health insurance, your benefits that your employer is picking up. And this is why it's very important for you to compare your savings rate to your own savings rate and not to someone else's savings rate, because there's no absolute answer here, but it's important to be consistent. That way these numbers make sense for you going into the next year and the following year. So let's say that you have chosen to get health insurance to your employer. It's optional. You're paying that. You would you include that on the bottom line or not? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that is a very, very smart point just to take a step back and say, as long as you do this in a uniform manner, that's what matters for you, right? You're trying to compare across years for your own life. And I think as Jonathan alluded to, people far smarter than me have tried to come up with the perfect savings rate percentage calculation. And, and it is a moving target because there are lots of different variables. There's even talking about pre and post-tax contributions, you know, if we wanted to really muddle the waters. So, right, so to right? go to that top line, like your 401k is worth 15% right. less than your Roth IRA. Right, you know? and I mean, nobody is gonna actually do that calculation. Well, so somebody is. Right, well, <laughs> I know those <laughs> But our purpose of this is to try to get you to move forward and take action. So that's what's really important. So for me, it's income after taxes, and I would look at, some of those items that are taken out of my paycheck as expenses because my healthcare, any aspect that I pay for myself, that is an expense. So 
I think it probably for me would be both. So I guess, you know, in summary, and this is one of those things that you say it and then you need to erase it because it's important just to make it as simple as possible without trying to cover every single variance for which maybe we can come back to. But in my mind, top equation is pretty easy. It's just anything that you are saving, your employer match, your 401k, HSA, your taxable accounts, your savings accounts, paying down on your mortgage. And then on the bottom line, this is your after-tax your, your after tax total compensation, which obviously includes everything that we just talked about in the numerator, but it would also include on top of that, you know, your take-home pay, what you actually spent. Yeah, absolutely. The bottom half of this equation is just your total income after taxes. That's pretty much what we've agreed upon in the FI community is after-tax income. So total income is on the bottom. That's the denominator. And the numerator we're saying is all of your savings. The easiest way to get to that is you can either do two ways. And of course, I'm the CPA. I, I do it both ways just to check myself, well, of right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> who, who wouldn't, right? You know, you can either just add together all these savings accounts, or in my case, I do like an income statement. So I just have my after-tax income, and then I have all my expenses to come down to my total savings. Now, in a perfect world, those two methods should tie exactly. And then you have the top line, the numerator on this real simple division. Now, I want to say that your savings rate is incredibly important as you're starting on your journey. As your life gets more complicated, you start investing in different vehicles and you, as you add complexity, it, it starts to become less relevant for reasons that maybe I'll highlight in just a second here, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Almost everyone, as they're getting started on the path to financial independence, needs to calculate their savings rate right now. And if you find out that you're paycheck to paycheck, then you're never going to be able to retire, right? If you find out that you're saving 50% of your income, you're doing incredibly well and the numbers are going to look awesome. And then there's everything in between. It's important to track your numbers compared to yourself over time. It's not to say, hey, Steve has a 40% savings rate. I only have a 25, what gives? Because you don't know how Steve is calculating his savings rate. It just, you know, you guys could be using different numbers in your numerator and your denominator. The reason that as it gets uh, a little bit more, it gets more complex down the road is what if you start getting involved in like rental real estate, and then you start making capital investments into those rentals in order to then increase rents down the road. Is that an expense? Is that an investment? How do you categorize that? What if you're a small business owner and you start doing capital investments there? Like the whole thing blows up. The whole thing blows up and that's fine. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do this. You should do this exercise. And as long as it works for you, you should do it going down the road to mark incremental improvement. Um, even me as an entrepreneur, this equation still works for me and I track it over time with myself. But there may be a place that all the, like you can blow it up if you start adding all these variables in there and that's okay. Just keep it simple and use it as a general anchoring principle you don't need to get it absolutely perfect. You should get a sense that you're getting better over time and that these basic numbers that you're using are moving you forward. Yeah, I mean, at its essence, you're just trying to track how much of your income you're spending. That's how you're calculating your savings rate. All right, I've got my income. Obviously, the tax expense comes off. There's little I can do about that. Of course, you can put in 401ks and, and things that we advocate, which will lower the tax expense. But Beside the point, just for this exercise, you have your income, you've got your taxes, you have your after-tax income. Now, you can do two things with that money. You can spend it or you can save it. That's ultimately what we're trying to figure out here is what percentage of that money are you spending and it's gone forever and what percentage are you saving? To Jonathan's point, if you're paycheck to paycheck or even saving one or two or 3%, 
it's going to take you many, many, many decades to get to a point where you can retire early or regular or late retirement, just any retirement. So the key here is how can I get my savings rate up? You can do a couple different methodologies. You can lower expenses, you can raise income, or you can do some combination thereof. We've hit on the low-hanging fruit for when you're getting started on your path to FI is clearly cutting expenses, all right? That is the easiest way to get quick wins and move forward. That doesn't preclude you from earning more income. I think that's a, a huge aspect of this. And we've talked with many people on negotiating salaries, on moving potentially to new jobs, to get higher salaries, to learning new skills, right? All these things are important and that will raise your income. And by definition, if your expenses stay the same, your savings rate will go up. This is a real simple equation, but at its fundamental essence, you're trying to say, all right, here's my income, here's what I'm spending, here's my savings rate. It's really important just to get some comprehension of where you are on this, and then can I move forward next year and maybe make some tweaks where my life is still the same level of happiness or maybe even more, and maybe I'm saving more. I think that's how I personally approach this. At the end of the day, all that matters is, do you have some sense of where you are today and do you have a plan moving forward? So Brad, what I thought we could do is, it's one thing just to talk about savings rate. I think the other half is to talk about impact of knowing these numbers and how it actually affect your financial plan. So using Jen as a total hypothetical, uh, what I thought we could do is just kind of paint a picture with this. Um, I think numbers are always much more fun when you paint a picture with them. So let's just say, let's just say Jen is 28 years old. She actually has $135,000 saved up. She makes $60,000 after tax. So we talked about the savings rate being based on after tax income. Currently, she just did this calculation and she calculated that she has a 35% savings rate. She's crushing it. And she wants to know now that she has this number, how she can do better the next year. And the following year, she's planning on really targeting a 45% savings rate. And she wants to know what the impact will be on reaching her, her number. So I know there's a lot of numbers coming at you. Hopefully you got most of it down, but if it helps, you know, if she's, if she's saving 35%, that means that she's saving $21,000 a year and to reverse engineer that her expenses would be $39,000. Yeah, no, that sounds good. This will be an interesting little look here. So, right. She's 28. She has been saving, obviously, a good bit of money. She has 135K saved up in her total net worth. Presumably, a lot of that is in 401Ks and, and places like that, but she has that 135K net worth. What's cool is you can figure out her fine number. You can work back into this. Her current savings rate is 35%. Her $60,000 after-tax income, she is saving 35% of that. So by definition, she is spending the other 65%. So that's $39,000 a year in expenses. So now to get your fine number, we generally say it's 25 times your annual expenses. In her case, it's $39,000 times 25 gets you to $975,000 as her total fine number. So I plug this into an investment calculator, just those exact numbers. She's 28, she has 135K saved up. Because of that 35% savings rate, that $21,000 a year in savings is $1,750 a month. So I plug that in as the monthly contribution. And we always figure this rough 8% annual return. Now, of course, that is based on historical returns and it's just an average. We can never 
confirm clearly that that's going to be the number going forward. But that's generally, Jonathan, the number we use here at Chooseify. So I determined that she'll hit her phi number between 42 and 43. She basically has 14 and a half more years to get to that $975,000 phi number under this construct of 35% savings rate. And ultimately, what's really important is the $39,000 of yearly expenses. Okay, that's perfect. So that's where she is now. But now she has this number and she's been able to calculate her phi date. But now that she has this initial picture, she's like, well, what if I were to do X, do Y? And and there's a couple of variables. You could say, what if I wanted my life to be a little bit more expensive? What if I wanted to make more? I think for the case of this example, we're going to say, what if you were going to focus on saving more of what you currently make? And by using some of the tactics that we talk on the show, you figure, what would it look like to scale my savings rate from 35% to 45% of my current income? How would that affect my path or how long it would take me to reach financial independence? Yeah. So in her case now, this is 10%, 10% additional on $60,000 of after-tax income. So she's looking to save an additional $6,000 a year which doesn't sound like an astronomical amount, right? It's $500 extra a month. And in this case, it changes her numbers, right? It changes every aspect of this because her savings now goes up to $2,250 per month. Her expenses went down. That's by definition here is, is how we're looking at it. We're saying her expenses went down, she cut expenses. Now, like we've mentioned many times, there are multiple sides of this equation. You can earn more income, but we're arguing she's cutting expenses, right? So- her expenses dropped from $39,000 a year to $33,000 a year. And now what that does is it makes her fine number lower because again, your fine number is based off of your annual expenses. We just took her 33K of expenses, multiplied by 25 and got to an $825,000 fine number. We've got two sides of this where not only is the fine number lower, but her monthly savings is higher. So when you're plugging this into the calculator, it you know, by definition, it's going to supercharge it in two different ways. I plugged all these numbers in again, starting with $135,000 in net worth at 28, the 22.50 month in contributions, 8% return, and she's going to retire at roughly 39, 39 years old. So an 11 year path to FI with a 45% savings rate. Now, Jonathan, we've seen people in the FI community with 50, 60, 70%. So 45%, which while phenomenal, is not this ultra deprivation, right? This is a pretty plausible number. And she is on an 11 year path to FI. So just by making that one change, that cut it from 14 and a half years down to only 11. That is the power of making these type of changes. That's a 10% savings rate change. And it cut really almost a quarter off of her path to FI. Yeah, small changes make huge differences in financial trajectories, especially with the power of compounding. You know, the other way, like I was addressing earlier, if we were going to do this example in other ways, maybe you look at that and you say, okay, that's great, but that involves me cutting my lifestyle down from 39K down to 33K. What if I'm just going to focus on the earn more side of the equation? I want to keep my lifestyle the same. You know, so I'm going to stay at 39K. Maybe I even inflate my lifestyle to where it costs 45K, but I'm going to focus on, on top of that, still being able to put aside an extra $500 a month. Again, this goes to knowing your savings rate and knowing how to use these projection calculators. And you can kind of build your own story. And I think it's cool over time 
that we can do this for different people in different places, you know, and, and what are the variables that you have control over? How much time do you have? So start earlier, best time to start 20 years ago, second best time today, right? Get started. And then am I going to focus on cutting? If you've been in a state of perpetual drift, let's focus on inefficiencies in our life and cut out low hanging fruit that doesn't add value so that we can get that money working for us as quickly as possible. And then earn more, you know, have you reached the peak of your earning potential? I mean, if you feel like that answer is yes, what does it look like to reframe that and to open up some new opportunities, move in a different direction? You know, you you don't have to just limit yourself to just one, but depending on what you view as accessible, what you view as reasonable, you can start with one of these and then you can move forward. And, and I want to say that the goal here does not have to be retirement and it doesn't have to be absolutely hitting this exact number. Like I think we've talked about this before. Nothing changes immediately when you've hit this number all along the way. You know, in this case, Jen, when Jen has $600,000 in her mid thirties, she is incredible shape. You know, she has, if she were to not earn another dollar, she could go a decade, more than a decade before she would ever need to work again. Right. And how much confidence does that give Jen when she wants to make a lifestyle change, when she wants to shift out of a very tight or tough job market and they want to move or do some domestic geo arbitrage and pick up in another place, but they feel like they're going to need a little bit of time in order to, to find that new opportunity. You know, when you're not trying to figure out where the next paycheck is coming from, it gives you ability to take what other people might view as risk, but for you really becomes opportunity. Again, it goes to knowing what your numbers are. And then having a realistic sense of what action you can impose on that. So that's why it's cool. I think it's really fun to be able to paint a picture for your life with numbers. All right, guys. Next, we have a voicemail that came in from Cassandra. She's actually giving us an update from a voicemail that she called in with back on episode 50R. So we're going to see how she's doing on her path to five. Hi, Jonathan and Brad. This is Cassandra. You played my voicemail on episode 50R back in November 2017. And I wanted to update you on our progress. My last voicemail was the start of our FI journey. We were maybe two months in and making changes, and now two years later, here's where we are. For my schooling alone, I had eight different federal loans with ranging interest rates. We started paying off the highest balance, which was, of course, the highest interest. One by one, we put an extra our extra money every two weeks or so to knock down the highest balance. Before being introduced to the FI community, we used to have savings. But what for? We had no clue. We just knew we were supposed to be saving, right? We always went back and forth on buying a house because here in the LA market, we really couldn't bring ourselves to buying a million dollar fixer upper. So with a good chunk of money, we went to Toys R Us for the gift of college gift cards so that we could earn the companion pass from Southwest. If we had to be paying loans, we at least wanted to reap some benefit. Since this was early in 2018, we earned the pass for most of 2018 and all of 2019. I was working very long hours, taking a lot of call to earn a bonus to further knock them out. My husband's in sales and strengthened relationships with clients and worked with new ones. Late in 2017, we went through our first round of IVF to start our family. Unfortunately, we suffered a loss and did a second round in July of 2018. Our goal was to be debt-free by the time our son was born. We are happy to say that by November 2018, we paid them all off. In April 2019, we welcomed Henry, feeling much more financially stable. I can't describe the feeling we felt to be debt-free. Before FI, I would joke that I would have these loans my whole life because it seems so unattainable to pay off. 
During maternity leave, we didn't count on the state disability pay, but it was a nice surprise when it was deposited. Since we had a baby fund and emergency savings, it allowed us to not feel rushed for me to go back to work. Once maternity leave was nearing an end, I was negotiating for part-time hours at my job. I had my numbers for the past three years with quantifiable value I added to the practice, as well as the quality of care provided to patients and staff development. When the time came, they came back to me with no benefits and a low hourly wage. I felt confident to reject that offer and find a place that was better suited for my goals for my family. I'm excited to report that tomorrow I start a new job where because we are financially secure, I was able to be very honest with the benefits I wanted. I wanted to work three days a week so that I could have a good work-life balance. I wouldn't have had this opportunity without the support of my husband. He is completely on board with our FI journey, and we nerd out watching our VTSAX balance slowly start to increase since the extra money now goes there rather than those student loans. While we might not be financially independent, thanks to your podcast, we have the tools to improve our lives. We are so grateful for our friend Candace for sharing this and truly enriching our lives so that we can have the family time we've always wanted. Thank you so much to this community because I'm not sure I would have known I had other choices. I might have felt like I had no choice but to go back to work right after leave or go back sooner than I was ready if we still had debt. From my last voicemail, I'm still trying to figure out what my potential side hustle would be. But having the time off with our son has allowed me to explore my passion for teaching and mentoring students. I'd like to teach a class for clinical practice, but also to help educate new graduate PAs about being more involved in their finances. I saw a quote recently, be the person you needed when you were younger, which really hit home for me. I hope to have more exciting news two years from now. Thank you again, Brad, Jonathan, and the FI community. That's incredible. You know, when you're recording every single week, I mean, to recognize even on this end of the microphone that you're not doing this alone, you know, there's really people out there that every single week are getting the opportunity to take action on these ideas. And because of those ideas, not because of us, but because of how powerful those ideas are and because they're actually taking action on it, their lives are forever changed. And it has an impact. I know her voicemail had an impact on me, but I know it has an impact on everybody listening to this. Yeah. I mean, that is remarkable. And Cassandra said in there, it gives you options. The subtext of that is it gives you power where previously you may have been powerless. For so many people who are living paycheck to paycheck, their lives are just hanging on that knife's edge where if they lose their job, they're 30, 60, or 90 days away from their entire lives crumbling. Having followed the path to FI, even from that very first couple thousand bucks in the bank, that makes a difference. Being down the path to FI, paying off your debt like they did, that makes a difference and it gives you options and it gives you power in your life to make decisions that work for you. And in this case, you can't come up with a better example than that. So just well done to you and your entire family. Very much tied to this. We were recently at a book signing. We had two separate instances. So an individual came up to us and she said, I just, I had to let you know because of the episode with Tori, Brad, maybe you can look up the number yeah. for me while I go ahead and share this. The episode with Tori talking about the importance of salary negotiation and why everybody needs to do this and providing in that episode a script to follow when working with your employer. I took that verbatim to my employer and I was able to negotiate a $5,000 raise. Now, in that same conversation, someone else comes up behind her, also at this book event, and says, oh yeah, and I meant to tell you, I did that exact same thing as well, and I actually added on to that what you were talking about in terms of if they didn't offer it, you know, how I would start looking to take my services somewhere else, I did that as well, and I was able to negotiate a $20,000 raise. 
Now, this is a local event in a local city, two individuals at this event, very small microcosm, but they listened to the podcast and they happened to be able to have the opportunity to tell me personally that this had happened. And I've got to think that if that happened there in this one local city, that that means that this was replicated in hundreds of cities and hundreds of job interviews around the country with employers. And, and, and these, these are conversations that have now already been had and results have been gotten or will happen over the next several months. There's a possibility that individuals in our community are making upwards of $500,000 more than, you know, as a collective than they were just because of a result of one, having heard that episode and then two, taking action on those ideas. Yeah, this was really pretty crazy. I was sitting right next to you at the book signing and to have two people who just in a very few short weeks, so it was episode 147. So it was literally within the three weeks prior to us having this book signing. These two individuals each got these raises. I mean, $5,000 and $20,000 just from listening to a podcast episode. That's the funny part. It's not about listening to the podcast episode. It's about getting up off the couch and taking action. How many people don't do that normally? But yet there's something about this community that it almost compels this action. And I, I was blown away to see two people do that. And in this episode with Tori, she's talking about just these common sense strategies you can use based on market data, skills, and education. I'm looking at a range of X to Y in order to be fairly compensated that phrase alone, and then using an ending phrase about coming to a collaborative number that we can all feel happy with. Those two different phrases alone has to increase the likelihood of success astronomically. I can't even imagine, like when you hear those, and we talked about this on 147R, of course I want you to be fairly compensated, right? It's these words are magical. And to see two people use it to such great success right in front of our eyes, Jonathan, I wonder how many people really did go out and do that. I mean, I'm sure there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that are either did or are planning on it at their next review. And you know, it's what drives me crazy. I feel like recently I've seen a thread in, you know, popular media, large media companies where they're actually coming to our community and they're asking, Hey, is there anybody, you know, that pursued fire and failed or didn't work for them? Or you even see titles of various things called is the fire dead or why financial independence is not for you or whatever, you know, some variation of that. I personally am not particularly interested in even listening or clicking on episodes like that because at its core, if you believe it or it is or isn't possible, you're right. You know, like if that's what you're going into it with, then then you're right. And there's plenty. And what irritates me is people with a platform are trying to take their platform and convince their audience that doing better with their finances is impossible or that there's nothing that they can improve upon. They're taking their platform and they're using it to say, you can't do this. And let me tell you why. Here are all the reasons you can't, because you don't have this level of access. I don't know. I mean, there's a list. There are a ton of things that make it more difficult. There are a ton of obstacles that you may have to work through. But when you increase your zone of awareness, ultimately what you believe about something will become true. And so if you believe that I can make small incremental changes that will improve my life by learning new tactics and strategies, if that's your belief system and you look for what serves you where you are, then the results will follow. If you believe, oh, this isn't for me because I'm not an engineer in Silicon Valley, so I better not even look. I better not even think about how salary negotiation could improve my life. I better not think about how saving my money, even at a smaller level, could allow me to have bandwidth the next time, you know, the opportunity arises 
you know, I, I find that very discouraging. And I see this thread right now because I think telling people why they can't do something gets more clicks than maybe giving people all the ways they can do something. You know, it's just think about that and recognize that there's someone that is working through more obstacles than as hard as maybe you have it right now in this moment. There's somebody out there that has had an equal, if not more obstacles. And because they were exposed or got access to some new information, you know, were able to take action on small ideas, they were able to get radically different results. If you can recognize that and then follow your version of that, maybe not the exact thing doesn't work, but something will land. Eventually something will land, but you got to position yourself for it and be ready for it. You know, create your own luck. I love how you said it really is how you approach this mentally. You can look at it as you're preordained to failure because everybody's telling you that, or you can look at it as I'm going to move forward and try to make changes in my life. This comes back to the negative for whatever reason. It's almost like the regular news. There are so many positive things going on in the world. If you read certain books, you realize the world is getting safer. The world is getting more educated, all, all these things. But yet what sells newspapers? What keeps eyeballs on 24 hour news? It's the breaking news of that horrible thing that's going on. If you're looking for good news, you're going to find it. If you're looking for bad news, you're going to find it. So why wouldn't you look for good news? This is just such an obvious strategy for life. To me, you can make changes, you can take in information, and you can take action and move forward. These two individuals did it to the perfect degree. I love it. And talking about finding the positive news, so I wanted to share a great community win today. So Nicole wrote us on Facebook and said she officially hit a 50K net worth. It might be a small step, but it took me a year and a half to get here. Next up, 100K or maybe a nice down payment for a house. So congratulations, Nicole. That's awesome. Congrats, Nicole. As you listen through these episodes, be inspired by the actions people have taken, but also recognize that these are replicable things that you can implement in your own life. And while it all works, it only works if you take action on the idea. So be that person. Unfortunately, that's going to bring this episode to a close. Now, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. And uh, currently we are doing our book, Chooseify, Your Blueprint to Financial Independence, which can be found anywhere books are found or can be won in this drawing to win a copy. Just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions there, leave us a short written review. And then send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get, and we announce the winner on the Friday Roundup. MK, how many winners do we have today? Well, guys, we have one winner today, and that is Conrad. So Conrad writes, simple, honest, true, and valuable in all caps. I've been listening to your podcast since March of this year after I learned about it in a Venezuelan newspaper story, and it has made a great impact on my life and that of my family. It made me aware of the hamster wheel and the fear of unemployment, which has allowed me to focus on how to tackle and overcome such feelings by understanding and taking control of finances. My journey to five started after I listened to the episode 100. Since then, I've started my own strategy of travel rewards, already earned my companion pass. I've optimized my family's living expenses by reducing them by about 40 to 50% monthly. I've increased our savings rate from about 10% to a projected 30% plus for 2019. And I've already joined the investing world after standing in the sidelines for way too long. I really appreciate all the actionable tips you share, the people who share their path to FI, and the resources for taking control of your finances. 
This podcast has changed my life, my drive, and focus, and has made me more confident of my family's financial future. The Path to Fi is available to anyone and everyone. I've been spreading the word about it and this podcast to friends and family to grow the community. Keep up the great work and looking forward to reading the book. The fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.